Let's pray together. Lord, it is good news, it is gospel that we came home, that your love drew us home, and that while we were still a long way off, you ran out to us. And you embraced us. Lord, wherever we find ourselves this morning, I pray for myself and for my friends that you would draw us into the party of grace happening in your heart. Whether we find ourselves as the older son or the younger son, we would come inside and know the Father's heart. And we would pray that you would speak to us too this morning in our minds and in our hearts, Lord, in a way that brings life and it gives hope that builds up. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Watching buildings go up fascinates me. Part of the reason is that there is a little kid in each of us and different things make it come out. And for me, construction makes it come out. I really enjoy looking at those picture books with my children that have the heavy equipment. I love seeing the real construction equipment. Recently, I even got to rent a real piece of equipment for a project I was doing. It was a trencher, and it was used to cut uh, a trench in the ground so I could put down some drainage pipe. I almost rented a backhoe, (laughs) a real digger. But I decided that my inexperience might cause more problems than it helped, and so I refrained. So I'm fascinated by construction, by things being built, partly because it, it does bring out that kid in me, but it's also because of its complexity. To an unskilled observer like me, I simply cannot comprehend how all of these different workers and contractors are somehow able to build something that upon its completion is beautiful and strong and functional. Now, I realize that part of what makes that possible is that you have an architect who draws up plans and building engineers who make sure all the math equations work so things don't fall over. And then you have all these different construction foremen or whatever that, that help people working towards the same goal. But it still amazes me that so many different people with so many different skills are able to come together and to build one building. To me, it feels like every time a miracle somehow is pulled off. Well, it turns out I'm not the only one who gets excited about construction. God is also into building things. Go back into the pages of Exodus, where God gave his people very detailed construction plans for a movable worship space called the tabernacle. And I'm sure there were some little Jewish boys nearby who loved watching that thing be built. But when we come to the New Testament, we learn about God's greatest building project. It's the building project he had in mind from the foundation of the world. It is his pièce de résistance, his magnum opus. And we hear about this project from the lips of God the Son in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will build my church. The church is God's greatest building project. We sometimes think about the church as the building down the street or the institutional organization. And the church certainly incorporates 
physical buildings and institutional realities, but it is, of course, much more than that. It's the gathering of God's people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. It is the people who bend their knee to Jesus as King and know Him as Lord and Savior. As a building is constructed of steel and concrete, the church is constructed of people born again and filled by the Holy Spirit. Well, the construction progress is, uh, is still a work, still going on. Jesus is not done building his church, not only because he's still adding people to it, as new people come to faith, but also because he's taking those who are already in the faith as living stones and he's shaping them into something beautiful, something well-constructed for him. And I would suggest that the building project will not be finished until the new Jerusalem as a bride adorned for her husband comes down out of heaven and God makes his dwelling place with us again. So we are part of something that is still being built. And we know that God is ultimately the one building it. Jesus said, I will build my church. And that's very good news. He's the one responsible for building it. But as the New Testament unfolds, we understand what that means. Jesus builds his church through the agency of his Holy Spirit working in and through his people. Jesus builds his church through the agency of his Holy Spirit working in and through his people. That means he uses us to build his church and all of us. Not just those who have been ordained or have theological education. Every single one of us. And it's a high honor and calling to get to be used in this way. One of the best places in the New Testament to wrap our minds around this building project, and particularly the role that we have to play, is Ephesians chapter 4. It is in this chapter that Paul will use this word building up multiple times. And so I want to ask uh, three questions of the passage this morning. First, what do we need in order to build? Second, what does the building look like? And third, what does the building do? How does it function? What do we need in order to build? What does the building look like? What does the building do? So if you have your Bibles with you, open them to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. And we'll begin with this question, what do we need in order to build? Paul writes, but grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So right off the bat, we see at least two things we need. We need grace. Oh my goodness, do we need grace. And if you've been reading Ephesians along, this is not going to come as a surprise. We're saved by grace, not by works. The building up of the church is a work of God's grace, not of human striving. Now the way Paul uses the word grace here is a little different than salvation grace. It's more like the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It's the grace that God gives to his people to enable them to serve. It's very similar to what Paul says in another letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So I think grace, manifestation of the Spirit are roughly synonymous in the way that Paul is using them. So first we need this grace. We need this working of God in us 
to build up the church. The second thing we need is a diversity of gifts. Paul says grace was given to each of us, each of us. And to really understand how he means that, we have to go back a few verses. In verses 4 through 6, we considered that last week. Paul is talking about unity. And he's telling us that there is one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We're, the, we're working on one church. It's not separate churches. There's lots of individual churches, but they're all expressions of the one church. That's what he's building. And so we have this unity. But then in verse 7, after listing the ones, Paul will have this little bit of a contrast where he says, but grace was given to each of us. In other words, there's diversity within the unity. He's not squashing all individuality. God has called and gifted each one of us differently to serve, to build up. His grace, the work of the Spirit, has a unique manifestation in each person and every person. And if we're going to have any building project, this must be the case. We must have this diversity of gifts and skills and contributions just as a construction project involves so many different types of workers, electricians and HVAC people and plumbers and uh, bulldozer operators. The The church needs all of the gifts to be built up. We then come to verses 8 through 10 where Paul launches on this, um, a little bit bizarre, honestly, theological explanation of how it is that Christ gives these gifts. And sometimes it'll be put in parentheses. It sort of seems like something else, kind of parenthetical to his main point. Well, he quotes Psalm 68, and he talks about Jesus descending and ascending. And there is a lot of interesting theology in there. I'm not going to get into all of it, but let me just highlight a few things. Christ distributing gifts to us is the result of his victory over the world and its powers. We've been going along, and and Paul is fond of talking about the the powers, the spiritual powers uh, in this present world, and he talks about that in Ephesians. And so here he's pointing out that this giving of gifts for the church is the result of Jesus being victorious. And that's a great word of encouragement. Because as we engage in this building project, we do so in the wake of his victory. The gates of hell will still come against the church. They will come against us as we try to engage in the work of the church. But we know because of this victory, they will never prevail against the building up of the church. And so all of our building will take place in enemy territory, but Christ is victorious. And so we can take verses 8 through 10 as this encouragement as we go forward. Well, we then come to verses 11 and 12, which are some of the most important in the New Testament. Because if we don't really get what Paul is talking about here, if we don't spend some time, if we don't press it down into our lives, into our church, then the building project is going to go far off course. It's going to be severely limited. So Paul writes this, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So he begins by identifying these five roles or or giftings, or some say offices. You have apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Now just a word about a couple of these, because they are interpreted in different ways, especially the first two apostles, and prophets. 
Now, these functioned in the early church in a certain way that they don't necessarily function today. I think there are still apostolic and prophetic giftings, but those giftings don't carry the same authority as they did before the New Testament was written down. One way to think about it is that the apostolic and prophetic authority, apostolic to really establish the faith and the prophetic to speak on behalf of God, all of that authority has been fully vested in the Bible. And so the Bible is now our primary source of authority. It, is, it contains the apostolic faith. It is God speaking directly and prophetically every single time to us. Now under that authority, I think God does call some people to be apostolic in the sense of being sent out. That's what apostle means, sent one, being sent out to establish uh, new ministries or churches or in the sense of um, guarding the apostolic faith. And so a role of a bishop in our tradition is partly to, to guard the apostolic faith. He's not the one giving it in that authoritative sense, but he's keeping it, he's maintaining it, he's passing it on. And then there's prophetic callings, not to speak directly on behalf of God in that same authoritative sense, but to speak a timely and specific word from Scripture into the life of the church or into the life of an individual. And to do that in a way that, that builds the church up and builds people up. So we need to use some discernment among the gifts, but that's not really Paul's main point here anyway. He's not listing all of the gifts. Rather, he's emphasizing that every single person is needed to serve and to build up the body of Christ. Even the five roles that he does mention are given by God so that the entire body can serve. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers are to equip the saints, that's all of us, for the work of ministry and for the building up of the body of Christ. So the pastors of a local church, the other staff or key leaders exist not to do the ministry, but to build up the body that they might do the ministry. They exist to equip. But the church has not always read this correctly. In at least one older version of the Bible, an English version, there was this very ill-placed comma that had disastrous effects on our understanding of ministry. Now, some of you have young children or maybe grandchildren that are learning to write. And sometimes when kids learn to write, um, they, they don't use any punctuation. They, they kind of merge all their sentences together. In fact, they don't even use spaces sometimes. In fact, they don't even use lowercase. They use actually all uppercase. Well, if your child is doing that, they're really pretty close to God because that's how the New Testament was written down. All capital letters, no punctuation, really no spaces. It was all just this kind of continuous text. And so when in our English Bibles, when you get a comma or some sort of other punctuation, that is an interpretation of the interpreter. They're, they're making a decision for you. 95% of the time, it really doesn't matter. It's just, okay, throw a comma in there. That's fine. But sometimes it has these huge theological implications, and this is one of those times. The older version says that God gave these particular giftings like pastors and teachers for the equipment of the saints, comma, for the work of ministry, comma, for the building up of the body of Christ. Meaning, pastors, teachers, other ministry leaders were called to do three things. They were to equip the saints. They were to do the work of ministry. They were to build up the body. You see how the comma threw everything off? I'm decreasing my job description here. 
It gave the impression that religious professionals, clergy, the theologically educated were called to do ministry and everybody else, the laity, were just to receive the ministry, to benefit from it. That's a terrible understanding of ministry, but it's still rampant in our churches. A better reading of that text is that Christ gave these prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers to equip the saints, no comma, for the work of ministry and for the building up of the body. So who's doing the work of ministry? Who's building up the body? The saints, all of us. What are the pastors to do? What are the ministry leaders to do? To equip the saints, to teach them, to encourage them, but not to do it for them. Think about building a huge skyscraper. And if someone came and said, hey, um, you three construction engineers and you couple of foremen, um, you guys do it all. That would be ridiculous. Nothing would ever get done. And yet sometimes that's how we approach ministry and in the church. Now this happens in part because the saints haven't understood their importance of their own contribution to ministry. We haven't developed our gifts. We haven't offered our gifts. That's part of the reason. It also happens because pastors too jealously guard ministry or take on too much. And I confess, I struggle with this. Too often, I take on two of the actual ministry myself instead of equipping you all to do it. And it's a constant discipline. I say it to Eric. I say it to Tammy. I say, hey, we're not here to do the ministry. We're here to equip others to do the ministry. So my role, Eric's role, some of the other ministry leaders, we're, we're here to teach, to equip in such a way that you feel empowered, prepared, ready to do that work of ministry, to build up the body, whatever that might be, to disciple others, to pass on the faith to the next generation, to feed the poor, to win the lost, to care for pastoral needs. So let me just ask a question, especially if this is your church home. How are we doing with this? How are we doing with this? Are you personally aware of how God's grace is uniquely at work in and through you for the building up of the body? Do you feel equipped? Do you feel encouraged, empowered? If not, what's stopping you? This building project is not possible without you. So that's our first question. What do we need for building? Well, we need God's grace and we need it uniquely expressed through every individual that we're all called to do this work of ministry and to build up the body. Second question though, what will this building look like? What will it look like? Have you ever seen one of those large architectural models of a future building project? Maybe some fundraiser or something. They want you to see what it's going to look like when it's done. I love those things. I think they're fascinating. They really help you visualize what it's going to be. Well, beginning in verse 13, Paul is going to give us a verbal model of what the building is supposed to look like. He writes, For building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So what does the building look like? It looks like Jesus. Paul says we are being built up into a fully grown, mature man, and the measure of that man is the stature of the fullness of Christ. 
God is building the church to look like Jesus. And not just one part of Jesus, but all of his fullness. See, sometimes we focus as individual churches on one part of Jesus's message or life, and we feel like we've arrived. So maybe one church is great at teaching the gospel. Another one is great at caring for the outcast. But we don't sit back on our laurels and say, look at us, the building project is over. No, the measure is the fullness of the stature of Christ. Every part of his character, every aspect of his message. Now, as we grow into this, what we find, once again, is that there is unity. In verse 13, Paul mentions the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God as this mark of fullness in Christ. And it's really neat, as we've been walking along this passage, to see it come full circle. Because in verses 1 through 6, Paul talks about unity. So what we saw last week, the character, the command, the content of unity. Then in verse 7, he points to the diversity of gifts, the diversity of grace. But then as those diverse gifts are used, not for self-fulfillment, but for the building up of the body, we find ourselves once again unified. It's actually quite amazing. In the same way, you can see thousands of different workers milling around like little ants, and then eventually you have a skyscraper. That's the church. You start with unity. You use your diverse gifts faithfully. You end up with this unified, beautiful, strong, functional body. It's the body of Jesus. And here, Paul begins to shift his analogy a little bit from building to body. Because the building isn't quite the best analogy for the church because it is a little bit too static. There's, there's more life. There's more uh, dynamic things happening. And so he begins to talk about this kind of building body. We are the body of Christ body unified under the one head. Incredibly diverse because it has all these different parts working, but unified under the head. So what does the building look like when it's finished? It looks like Jesus. It looks like his body. The church as it matures and grows becomes recognizable as the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if you realize that the building project that we're involved in, that that has those kinds of implications. But if we don't play our role, then something in that final picture is missing. We're not able to express the fullness of Christ without every member. In verse 16, Paul says this about the body. In Christ, the head, we are being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. Every joint supplies. That means all of us, according to to the proper working of each individual part. We can't fully be what God made us to be without every joint supplying what God designed it to supply. Third question. What does this building do? There's different kinds of buildings, right? They have different functions. You have a warehouse, an office building, a restaurant. They all function in different ways. What kind of structure is God building the church to be? Well, earlier in Ephesians 2, we learned that God is building us to be a dwelling place for the Spirit. And that would be primary. We are built in order to be filled with the Spirit, to be this dwelling place for God. I would say that's really who we are. But then here in Ephesians 4, Paul identifies what we do. Look at verse 15. Speaking the truth in love. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into every way into him who is the head. 
what is the church to do? It is to speak the truth in love. It's interesting. There's actually no word for speak in the Greek text. It's just the verb form of the noun truth. You might translate it truthing in love. It certainly refers to speaking, but it's not limited just to that. It refers to our action, our, our character, our way of life. We are to be a body, a building, truthing in love, always truth, always love. Not one day truth and another day love, always together, inseparable, and in some ways, indistinguishable. Because they exist together in the character of God and you can't parse them out. What if the church was known for this today? What if we uh, spoke with a prophetic voice into the culture? We did it boldly. We did it without compromise. But what if it was always done in love? What if the way we spoke so communicated love that even if the culture rejected the truth, they would not be able to deny the love? I think that's what Peter is getting at in his letter, 1 Peter Chapter 2, verse 12, he says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Right now, primarily, I would say, because of our stance on sexuality and marriage, the world is accusing us of doing wrong. They are saying you are bigoted, you are hateful, you're not about equal rights. And when they do that against the truth of which we're speaking, I would say they're wrong. But sometimes they're right. Sometimes we are not being loving. We've acted or we've spoken in a way that didn't communicate love, even if the truth of our words were true. Three or four years ago, an unlikely friendship developed between two men. Shane Winmeyer is a gay man. He has a husband. He's been together for 20 years. Shane is the founder and executive director of Campus Pride, an organization promoting LGBT concerns on college campuses. It's uh, headquartered right here in Charlotte, actually just down the road. A few years back, Shane's group was involved in organizing opposition to Chick-fil-A because of Chick-fil-A's stance on marriage and certain organizations that they had been uh, donating one day, Shane got a call from a Dan Cathy, head of Chick-fil-A. And he was, of course, suspicious at first. Why is this guy calling me? It's probably not to offer a chicken sandwich. But through a number of phone calls, emails, texts, and eventually some in-person meetings, this friendship developed. They even went to the Peach Bowl together. And the way Dan Cathy treated Shane spoke volumes to this man. I want to read you in, in Shane's own words through a Huffington Post article that he wrote some years back. He writes through all of this, Dan and I shared respectful, enduring communication and built trust. His demeanor has always been one of kindness and openness. Even when I continued to directly question his public actions and the funding decisions, Dan embraced the opportunity to have dialogue and hear my perspective. Dan expressed a sincere interest in my life wanting to get to know me on a personal level. He wanted to know about where I grew up, my faith, my family, even my husband, Tommy. In return, I learned about his wife and kids and gained an appreciation for his devout belief in Jesus Christ and his commitment to be a follower of Christ more than a Christian. Dan expressed regret 
and genuine sadness when he heard of people being treated unkindly in the name of Chick-fil-A, but he offered no apologies for his genuine beliefs about marriage. And in that, we had great commonality. We were each entirely ourselves. We both wanted to be respected and for others to understand our views. Neither of us could or would change. It was not possible. We were different, but in dialogue. That was progress. Truthing in love. That's what God has created the church to do. It's our function with each other as we walk together in Christ and also with those who are not in Christ out in the world. This is an outworking, not of some nice idea, but the very identity of Christ himself, whom John described as full of grace and truth. Jesus, more than anyone, He spoke, he lived truth and love to the disciples, those on the inside, and to tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners, those on the quote-unquote outside. And by doing so, he built up his church. And he now calls us to that same sacred calling, and he empowers each of us individually with grace to supply the unique thing that we have to supply so that the body the great construction project of God might go forth and continue to be built up. Let's pray.